Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Alexander Cooley and Daniel Nexon, who have written a, uh, a book called Exit from Hegemony: The Unraveling of the American Global Order, which is an excellent book. Um, we'll have a link when we publish the show. Um, so for us, we wanted to do this show for two reasons. One was just a basic question of how do, you, how do we understand global order? in post 2016. So a very basic political science question. What is order? How do we think about it? And where are we today? And the second sort of question for the Loopcast, and one that we have been very much struggling with, which is what is Trump and Make America Great, MAGA, however you want to describe it, how, what is its effect on global order, right? So we've been, we've been struggling it with, with it in two ways. One is, is it enough? Should we invite white nationalists on the show and describe that underlying transnational network and, you know, how white nationalism, anti-immigration and sort of that sort of stern nationalism affects America's position. And then on the other side, you have people like Peter Navarro and General Spalding. You know, how does the United States, its position in the great power politics? And we have not been able to find somebody who bridges those two aspects, that sort of fierce nationalism, white nationalism, and that sort of strong foreign policy, great power politics. It's been sort of kind of difficult to find somebody who meets the show's standards, guest standards. So today our guests have written this great book, Exit from Hegemony, that kind of, we kind of see it as bridging that understanding you know, having us understand, you know, what does U.S. power and its position in the global system look like post-2016, you know, during Trump and with MAGA. So please welcome Alexander Cooley and Dan Nixon. Hey, guys. Hey, hey thanks for having be us. With you. Yep. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> so I want to maybe start off with the question that we posed at the top, which is, where are we today when it comes to global order and the U.S.'s position in it? What is, you know, how much of that, that position is due to Trump and how much of it is due to sort of longstanding factors? Okay, well, uh, let me take a, a stab at it and then Dan can, can certainly chime in as well. So I think part of the answer to your question depends on what your baseline is, right? So I think we've been conditioned a lot of, academics, IR scholars, policy analysts who either uh, conducted the graduate studies in the 1990s or served in the Clinton administration in the 1990s or the Bush senior administration, um, um, use the 1990s as their baseline for what the ideal typical um, order should be. And that is one of U.S. dominance, right? One in which the U.S. is the lone superpower and controls all the ordering architecture and infrastructures, right? So this means effectively that um, U.S. rules and norms dominate international organizations, um, as does U.S. funding and U.S. preferences. It also means that the U.S. has a, a patronage monopoly. In other words, if you need uh, weapons, if you need development assistance, if you need uh, normative watchdogs to certify your elections, the U.S. provides these forms of international goods. And then 
we do have the rise of transnational uh, movements and networks in the 1990s, but we assume and we study that they are liberal, that they share the values and the general purpose of the United States. And so whether it's spreading human rights, democracy promotion, the environment, uh, gender rights, we assume that these transnational networks were, were nimble, were committed to liberal progressive causes, and that could undermine state sovereignty as a result. So if we use that as a baseline, the world looks very different right now because in all three fronts, we see contestation. We see new regional organizations that are influenced, led um, by China and Russia, especially also Saudi Arabia that um, also uh, push different norms. We see the rise of different alternative patronage providers. China is the obvious one with the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and we see the rise of e-liberal transnational networks, uh, many of which are also operating within the core of the liberal order itself, which was the West. So from that perspective, things look very different now. The question is, you know, is Trump the cause of this? No. Um, he is a great accelerant. Um, just today, White House confirmed that U.S. is pulling out of the WHO. But these trends were afoot. Um, even at the end of uh, George W. Bush administration, certainly into the Obama administration, but Trump has actively accelerated them on all three fronts. And I would say Trump himself and the Trump administration in the White House and a good part of the executive is part of an illiberal uh, sort of counter order movement and that we talk about in the books. So, um, you know, with the 1990s as a baseline, the world looks different now. Um, but perhaps historically, the reversion to what we have now is not so atypical. Yeah, I endorse that. Oh. <laughs> That's kind of interesting that Trump is an accelerant. Could you maybe expand on that? So, so Trump, like, you know, he's he comes to power in 2016, but you know, when we talk about a timeline or a time frame, what are we talking about? If he is accelerating trends, are we, are we sort of talking about trends that were established after the end of the Cold War or something that was more contemporary with Obama and George W. Bush sort of post-2000? So when we talk about the kinds of transformations we're seeing today, the fundamental cause is one that everybody understands and everybody talks about in foreign affairs, foreign policy, wherever, which is that in the early 1990s, the United States controlled 25% of global GDP. Uh, and with its, uh, with in, in the greater West, right, the greater cartel of advanced industrialized democracies controlled about 45% uh, of global GDP, right? So uh, all the wealth sort of is concentrated uh, in Western Europe, uh, North America, Japan, South Korea, um, and then Australasia, parts of Australasia. Secondly, the United States, you know, is the sole military superpower. And part of that has to do with dividends coming home from investments the United States had been making in technology since the 70s or earlier. Uh, but part of that was just that the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, and absent the Soviet Union, the United States, in fact, if you look at the numbers, the United States is actually reducing 
real defense spending uh, through the 1990s, but it's just there's nobody up with it, right? I mean, you can see the point in the map where Russia, the Soviet Union just kind of drops off and all of a sudden the U.S. is alone at the top. And the U.S. is the only country in the world as a consequence of the Soviet collapse, with the partial exception of some of its allies, France, Britain, that really has global force projection capability. And so the Soviet bases largely disappear, uh, the Soviet order crumbles, uh, and the United States is alone at the top. So if you look at sort of the two uh, standard measures of power, uh, size of economy, uh, sort of military prowess, the United States is in a league of its own. It's the sole superpower. This is the unipolar moment. Uh, you could also look at some other indicators. Um, the United States, uh, this is when sort of it becomes very clear that dollar hegemony is a thing, uh, that Bretton Woods has not eroded the position of the dollar. If anything, the U.S. may be, uh, the dollar might be more fundamental in some ways uh, to the global, global transactions. I, so whatever. Um, so this was not going to last, uh, and it wasn't going to last for the reasons that the scholars of power transitions and hegemonic stability tell us, which is that, uh, you know, Gilpin calls it the law of uneven growth. Uh, eventually, some states do better than other states. Uh, there are reasons why we should expect, say, developing economies to grow faster than developed and mature economies. And those sorts of factors eventually led to uh, a shift in or leading to, you know, over time, a shift in the center of economic wealth. Um, the most startling example of this course and the one that everybody's talking about now as we enter, supposedly enter the era of great power competition is the rise of China. Uh, it really is in many ways China's arrival on the scene, uh, particularly in the last 10 years that's produced all the dynamics we're interested in. But there's also the fact that, you know, Russia had cratered out in the 90s with the twin effects of structural adjustment going really awry uh, and the collapse of oil prices. And Russia sort of came back, right? I mean, Russia is obviously, everybody discounts it because if you look at the long-term trends, they're sort of downward. It's a declining power in that sense. But Russia does have, in purchasing power parity terms, now an economy roughly the size of Germany. Uh, it does have nuclear weapons. It does have forces. And its forces have gotten better. Certainly, much more capable they, than they were in the 1990s when they were involved in a meat grinder in Chechnya. So you've got sort of a, the sense of kind of a restoration of just through uh, uneven growth rates and, and sort of a gravitational pull uh, of, of the world becoming the power diffusing away from the United States, and, and that was inevitable. Uh, you know, there were certainly plans like the the project for the new American century which thought that if the United States just spent a ton of money on defense, it could deter other states from developing military capabilities. There might have been ideas dancing in sugar plums in people's heads about a kind of permanent locked-in tech boom that would allow the United States to always be ahead technologically and thus always uh, maintain some sort of economic edge. There's still people who argue that that's the case uh, and will be the case. Uh, but nonetheless, like that was just inevitable. So when we talk about long-term trends, uh, that were happening and were happening during the 90s, if you look beneath the surface, were happening in the 2000s, if you look beneath the surface of various kinds of events that are more spectacular, like the invasion of Iraq, these trends were underway. And everybody knew these trends were underway. The Pentagon was already talking about the rise of China in the early 90s. Uh, economic projections in the early 90s, uh, late 80, you know, showed what was going to happen with China, although I think people discounted them to some degree, because of the experience of Japan, you know, because we used to think Japan was going to overtake the United States, and then it didn't. 
so um, those are the kinds of things that, that do things like, as Alex was talking about, erode the patronage monopoly, make it so that other actors are capable of getting uh, military assistance or economic assistance or spending money to build their own regional organizations and making those regional organizations effective. So all those things, those are, are kind of more or less kind of inevitable. Um, it's not necessarily inevitable that you had um, some things that helped to accelerate this trend even before Trump or, or, or I think kind of really harmed the U.S. position. Uh, we could run through those. You can tell a story that even goes back in the Clinton administration, but obviously you would want to, you know, you'd want to talk about big inflection points. You might you'd have to talk about the global war on terror and the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which, you know, consumes a lot of resources, kind of punctures the myth of, of U.S., you know, that the U.S. stands astride the globe like a colossus. The U.S. can now be defeated by an insurgency. This matters reputationally. It diverts the United States' attention away from, from China and other sort of great powers in the early 90s. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff, you know, it costs a couple trillion dollars. Um, that's deficit financed. So you have all these, you have these things that occur that, that can slower speed uh, this process. The Iraq war certainly sped it up. Uh, and it sped it up for a whole bunch of reasons that aren't just rooted in terms of the way it sank U.S. resources, which we'll probably get to, that have to do with the political effects of the Iraq war. Uh, during the Obama administration, you know, it was sort of a restoration game, right? The ma major point of the Obama administration was kind of to, to get back into the game of having better relations with our allies and doing more multilateralism and pulling back, at least from Iraq. Uh, and it was, you know, it, I think the record of the Obama administration is mixed, but one thing was very clear that by 2011, the administration saw itself as kind of trying to prepare for a world in which the United States was not so globally dominant and trying to set up the kind of uh, alliance and other kinds of infrastructure that would make that a softer landing, something that was much criticized for uh, by uh, hawkish Republicans. Uh, so when Trump comes in, he comes in into an environment in which uh, really between the end of the Great Recession and which looks initially like it's going to a big economic success story for the United States and the G7, but ultimately I think turns out to be less so uh, in terms of the global distribution of economic power. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, coming out of that and then coming out of uh, really developments that happened in the 2010s under the Obama administration that have to do with uh, China getting more assertive uh, internationally, both in security terms and in political terms, uh, with Russia becoming more assertive. Uh, Trump enters into that environment, and then Trump's policies themselves are policies that are geared towards uh, attacking uh, what people sometimes call the international liberal order. So they're geared towards the idea that this infrastructure that Obama has been trying to right-size, and that even, you know, during the sort of biggest freakouts about the Bush administration, the Bush administration was not really interested in torpedoing things like NATO, things like the U.S.-Japan alliance, uh, things like, uh, you know, they might bypass the UN, but they weren't going to pull out of key, you know, they weren't going to sort of completely try to marginalize the UN for all things, and particularly in the Bush's second term. So Trump comes in uh, with this idea that he's going to transform the U.S. position in international order by essentially deconstructing uh, this infrastructure of uh, international order that the United States has been had not only tried to right-size under Obama, but been building up since the 40s. Uh, and I'm going to, I've said a lot now, but this is sort of the, the stage that we're setting, that, that Trump uh, is uh, opposed to aspects of international order that 
are, had widely been seen previously, and I think correctly as being uh, sources of power and influence for the United States. Uh, and he does that because his attitude is more aligned with, say, the European far right, or in some ways the Russians, in terms of understanding how international politics ought to be put together and what he thinks would be a kind of international environment which would be best for U.S. interests. Yeah. I mean, Dan's, uh, Dan has covered all that. I'll, I'll just add one, one additional point that take us in a related place, and that is uh, an inflection point known as the regime changes of the color revolutions and the Arab Spring in the mid-2000s and then, um, you know, 2010, 2011. Um, and the significance of those is that it recast the U.S. emphasis on democracy promotion um, from political nuisance or annoyance into one of regime threat, that um, regimes abroad, um, whether they be in Uzbekistan or um, in uh, MENA, um, you know, started to um, look at U.S. influence and involvement and this kind of apparatus of democracy watchdogs, NDI, NRI, election observers as actual security threats, right? And so this recoding cast the U.S. in some ways as a kind of um, uh, almost uh, uh, destabilizers in the eyes of a lot of autocrats or in the eyes of a lot of sort of, um, you, know, uh, you know, tentative democratizers. Um, and that also alters a lot of domestic calculations about the benefits of integrating into U.S.-led orders and processes. And so if you look at, you know, indicators are problematic methodologically, but if you look at, say, Freedom House indicators for freedoms in the world, 2005 is really uh, the point in which we start seeing a broad de-democratization in the world. Um, and it's quite pronounced in areas like Eurasia um, to the point where we see the rollback of European Union countries, right? Uh, Hungary is now classified um, as not a democracy, is partially free. Um, the same with Poland. So um, um, I think that's the other, other piece of this, that individual governments, especially those that are not adhering to democratic uh, norms and rules, um, start to become quite, uh, you know, quite skeptical and suspicious of uh, the U.S. agenda for international transformation. And of course, that's also amplified by what Dan mentioned, the Iraq war and the justification for the Iraq war, right? The freedom agenda and, and, and sort of forced regime change and so forth. Um, so when all this hits in a place like Libya um, and the way that the Gaddafi regime, you know, Gaddafi's literally just gunned down like a dog, um, this has quite a powerful effect in other places, and it's something um, that deeply affects Putin, actually, and the balance of power between Putin and Medvedev um, at the time in Russia. And it cements this idea that the U.S. just can't be trusted, that these principles and liberal norms and rules of you know, democracy or responsibility to protect, that they're all covers for the assertion of Western power. So I would say that's that's the other part here that you know democratic rules and norms 
um, go from being sort of political issues that everyone has to give lip service to, to being uh, viewed as regime threats possibly. Yeah, can I actually come back to this? I know that you're anxious to get in and ask us some more questions, but I feel like uh, we've sort of, um, we haven't coordinated what we were going to talk about quite well enough. So I, I think I want to give a brief overview of something. So I emphasize these secular trends, right? These trends that are occurring, that we're going to occur no matter what. Um, but that could move slower or faster, right? That you can imagine U.S. economic policy producing faster growth. Sorry, I don't know if I producing faster growth or producing slower growth. You could imagine the United States um, conserving its military power or uh, wasting it in the deserts of Iraq, right? So these are things that affect U.S. capabilities. You can also imagine the United States adopting policies that make states more interested in allowing the United States to continue preponderance right, viewing that a world of U.S. preponderance is safer, or viewing a world of U.S. preponderance as more threatening, right? So there are, there are policy, there, there's agency, there are policy decisions that can affect uh, how this underlying shift, a, the speed of this underlying shift in power, but also can affect how uh, it's mediated politically, right? So it can affect how much, in the classic terms of hegemonic stability theory, states decide that they uh, want to revise the order and, want, and are uncomfortable with the way that the dominant power is running things. Then there are a set of inflection points that are related to that politically that help, that I think are points in which you could, you really could sort of have seen things go more quickly or more slowly. Um, and it's easy to look back at the inflection points that really sped up some of the process of what we call hegemonic unraveling. So the inflection points we've mentioned are important there. Uh, you could go back in some ways and tell a story about the Kosovo war uh, and U.S. intervention in Kosovo as being a really fairly important crack in the kind of mutual understanding that some rising powers had. I mean, China was very upset and pissed about U.S what they viewed as an impossible accidental bombing of their embassy. The Russians, of course, saw this as a major affront to their great power status and their interest in the regions, in the region. But you could, but if you went forward, obviously Iraq's a huge deal. It's not only a huge deal because it militarizes regime change and democracy promotion, but also because it seriously upsets a bunch of traditional allies. You feel that the United States is running roughshod over their interests, over consultation with them, uh, and that the United States is sort of adopted norms like like the doctrine of, of, of preemption that make the United States, make a world with the United States being the social power look a lot less comfortable for them. Another inflection point, which we've mentioned, of course, is the Great Recession. I think the Great Recession has some effects that are a little bit unpredictable and are interesting that way. Um, the second, uh, so, so that's potentially an inflection point, which Alex might speak more to if we circle around back to it later. Uh, another key inflection of point, of course, is what happens with U.S.-Russian relations during the Obama administration, uh, and ultimately what leads us to the 2014 uh, uh, Ukraine crisis, which I think is a real breakpoint uh, in U.S.-Russian relations and is part of the story of how Russia gets much, much more interested in promoting counter-order movements uh, in the West, uh, a strategy that that it's a hard to assess the effects of, but certainly ties in some important developments. And then the other big inflection point we would talk about before we get to Trump's election is the uh, migration crisis uh, from the Syrian civil war. Uh, 
Uh, and that, of course, uh, is we can look at the data, we can look at the political effects and see very strongly that that crisis uh, really, um, in fear of immigration and migrants, really drives a move, uh, drives the ascendancy of a lot of figures on the populist right or the reactionary right in Europe and even in North America. And that has effects on politics, bringing to the fore uh, political parties and movements who do not like certain fundamental things about the order that the United States had previously constructed with the cooperation and the assistance largely of other advanced industrialized democracies, other economic great powers like Germany, France, Britain, uh, Italy, Japan, et cetera. Uh, so. That's interesting because you've we've touched on a lot um, in that first answer, which was we can describe hegemony as an allocation of capital, allocation of force, as networks. But when we when we sit down and and describe U.S. hegemony, how do how how do we think about it? What is that construction, right? So is that it? Almost seems like. It's something that came out of the Cold War, grew, and then started to to be challenged post-2000. So when we describe this hegemony, when we describe this global order, the liberal global order, international liberal global order, or whatever, you know, how, what is the vocabulary? What is the description? What is the construction of that? I think we're sort of going back and forth on this because I've been talking a while, but uh, this is a little bit, I guess, my more, more of my bailiwick. We can maybe chime in. So conceptually, and they talk about this in the book, and this is fairly basic stuff if you are into the IR theory, but we hope that people who aren't into the IR theory read the book. You know, hegemony is a term of art that just means leadership originally. Right, and that's the Greek root is the leader of a military alliance, uh, a Greek of city states, uh, and there's a parallel institution in uh, in Joe China, which is the I, I don't know how to pronounce it correctly. It's the Ba, but it's essentially it's the deputized uh, city state or deputized polity state that is that acts as the enforcer for the increasingly uh, ineffectual uh, Joe dynasty. And so those are the kinds of notions we have. It's just a, a, an international actor. Uh, when we talk about the international system, it could be any actor really that uses uh, that that exercises leadership. Now, in IR terms, international relations terms, what we usually we usually mean a little bit more than that. We we sort of mean that uh, we are talking about a state that or any actor. You could actually have a hegemon in an office, for example, who has a preponderance of certain types of power resources. It could be economic. It could be military. Both. Or, or it could be both, and uses those resources to um, regulate the behavior of other actors, right? So in uh, a domestic political economy, you might talk about the capitalist class uh, having a predominance of economic capital, and then using that those resources to order relations among other actors, uh, Lupin proletariat, bourgeoisie, proletariat, what have you, uh, and also structure then a political order uh, in using those resources uh, to arrange those relations to determine how, uh, how people will interact inter economically, what their status and prestige are, what their, their class is, what kinds of rights and, and duties they have in a domestic political system. Internationally, we mean sort of the same thing. So we think about a state that has accumulated or an empire 
or whatever that's accumulated sufficient resources that it is it can't it has no peer competitors it has no other uh, state or coalition of states who can effectively challenge it and so it uses those outside capabilities in order to um, lay down rules of the road right uh, under what conditions do you go to war uh, what do alliances look like? Uh, under what for, how, what is the zone of cooperation? How does that, and what form does cooperation take among states? Uh, what, what kinds of performances or activities get you high levels of prestige? What gets you low levels of prestige? Um, it may, uh, there may be uh, encoded claims or maybe behaviors that promote certain types of regime type, certain types of regimes. So you can imagine authoritarian hegemons who might uh, promote other authoritarian regimes, uh, either because ideologically they like those regimes, those are the regimes they want, or because they view those regimes as more convivial for their way of doing business. Uh, democrat democratic hegemons are often associated with the promotion of uh, at one to some degree of, of democratic of like-minded democratic states, um, probably for ideological reasons. Uh, so that's what a hegemon is. It's just a powerful actor that uses its power to order other actors. Um, and that order can look highly variable, right? So uh, the way that we understand it, uh, one way that you might order relations if you had that kind of power is you might just impose empire, right? You might formally annex everybody else, uh, render them viceroys or governors or appoint your own people in their place uh, and then try to rule uh, that way in the kind of Rome, late Rome, the sort of later Roman model or the Egyptian New Kingdom uh, or the Assyrians, right? Um, uh, or the Persians, uh, or you could um, uh, have a kind of informal empire where other actors maintain their nominal independence, had international personalities were states, or in contemporary terms, nominally sovereign states, but really were kind of uh, essentially your clients. Or you could have arrangements that were more equitable, right? Arrangements that were more multilateral and where you gave other states more voice opportunities. And there are a variety of theories about what might explain this variation, uh, but what we do know is that after the Second World War, when the United States emerges as controlling something like 40 to 50% of the global economy as the only state that's industrial base, industrial base hasn't been destroyed by the Second World War, uh, as potentially there's a debate about how U.S. military forces match up against Russia, uh, against the Soviets. So the Soviets are not actually capable of global power projection. They can do the Eurasian continent, but they can't, they don't have the Navy the United States does, for example. Uh, and so the United States emerges out of this with a preponderance of power. And you probably, your listeners, you know the standard story. The United States, uh, with cooperation of a lot of other states, some in Latin America, the British, etc., uh, through a series of big moves, um, organizes a bunch of key institutions of international politics. Uh, the most famous is the United Nations system, which is agreed to by the Soviet Union and everybody else. Another one, of course, is the Bretton Woods system, which is the origins of the International Monetary Fund, the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, the GATT rounds and negotiations over free trade, uh, and what becomes the World Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Um, and there are a set of... Uh, there, there are a set of, on the economic side, there are a set of ideas that people think are encoded in those arrangements, and they basically boil down to the United States as promoting a form of liberalism that kind of reflects New Deal values, uh, New Deal styles of liberalism, as opposed to the kind of liberalism that prevailed in the 19th century, which was more, um, more laissez-faire in orientation, more, more about the gold standard as being cent central to balance of payments. Um, so the United States does... Uh, 
exercise a hegemonic role in ordering international politics after the Second World War. But of course, very quickly, we slide into competition with the Soviet Union. Uh, and so there's a debate. Some people say this is a hegemonic system in which the Soviet Union is a challenger uh, who that's rejecting U.S aspects of U.S. order and is trying to challenge the United States, and they view it in that hegemony frame. The other people say, well, it becomes more of a bipolar system with two superpowers controlling separate hegemonic spheres. The United States exercising hegemony broadly over Latin America, Western Europe. Uh, some of these are more asymmetric relations, some more informal imperial, some more symmetric or become more symmetric, more relations between sovereign allied states. This is the direction that NATO eventually goes in, for example. And the Soviet Union controlling uh, the Warsaw Pact zone and, and Comic-Con and these other zones of uh, more autarkic, uh, more informal imperial, imperial hegemony, and then competition in, among the new nations, right? They're competing in this other zones of the world where they don't exercise clear hegemony. Um, but of course, we all know that what ultimately happens is that the Soviet Union collapses and takes its order down with it. Uh, and so the United States uh, makes some, I think, sometimes by inertia, sometimes by conscious choice, sometimes just because there's all this kind of vacuum to flood into uh, because of a variety of other kinds of interests at stake. The United States makes decisions that ultimately are about kind of trying to enlarge and spread the institutional, the, the what we call liberal institutional arrangements that existed in its zone, and then also to strengthen some of the global institutions like the United Nations that had been uh, sort of everybody had kind of been involved with. Uh, and Alex can tell more of that story if you really want to hear it about what that means for post-Soviet space. But ultimately, this is then the emergence of a kind of attempt at global liberal hegemony, but one which is never really, never really nailed down, is always kind of patchwork and incomplete in some realms. And it's that push for uh, kind of liberalization and democratization in a lot of spheres. The United States is still supporting autocratic regimes in a lot of places too. That, as Alex alluded to, starts to threaten uh, the survival of other regimes and starts to make liberal order and the United States promotion of liberal order by the mid to late 2000s look like something that is more than a nuisance, is actually a security threat to countries like China and Russia. Does that help answer your question? No, that's perfect. Um, and I think you, you touched on something that's interesting. Both of you touched on this. And I kind of want to bring it to the fore, which is we kind of understand or have a feeling of how orders are created, how a hegemony is established. But is, is there a tension between sort of creating that order and then unraveling it? Because it almost seems like there's, there's a couple threads, which is Trump is an accelerant to this unraveling. So it's kind of, it's almost taken as self-inflicted. And then there's this, these other powers like China, like Russia, like Saudi Arabia that are kind of pushing back, right? So post 2000, post um, the, the Arab Spring, the color revolutions, and then sort of in this economic sphere between the U.S. and China. So, you know, how do we, how do we pair the tension or how do we understand the tension between creating an order, unraveling it, and then sort of more abstractly, you know, how do we understand an order's resilience? How does it sort of fight back or push back against an unraveling or a sort of de deconstruction? It's, it's a great question. And it's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated question. Um, 
you know, as we sort of point out in the book and also in the Foreign Affairs article, we've seen this kind of declinist movie before, right? We've seen, you know, predictions of the U.S., you know, U.S. hegemony and related sort of U.S. power and U.S. order, um, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, you know, with sort of kind of famous books coming out. Um, so, you know, what makes it real this time? What makes it, um, as we would say, sort of, you know, terminal as opposed to sort of cyclical? And, you know, I, a, a big part of this is that there is um, a repurposing of the kinds of institutions that we saw the U.S. sort of, you know, build its hegemony on, get reconfigured. So one of the things that we try to do analytically is kind of downplay the question of intentionality in terms of great power strategic competition, right? That a lot of the literature looks at, you know, uh, what are policymakers in Beijing thinking? Or, obversely, well, Moscow wants to be a revisionist power, but it's failed in places like, you know, Kyrgyzstan or, you know, in Armenia. And we want to take that out um, and actually look at what we use as an ecological metaphor, right? If you look at the ecology of the 1990s, you see the U.S. influencing, and in, if not in control, of regional architectures, international patronage providers, and transnational networks. And if you fast forward 25 years, the ecological map, um, and we sort of take a shot at some of these renderings, looks far more dense and far more complicated. There are states that are caught in these different kinds of ordering architectures and infrastructures, right, that used to exclusively be in the quote-unquote U.S. camp, or had no choice but to pretend that they were aligned with the U.S. camp. Um, take a country like Djibouti, right? It is the site of um, the main U.S. military facility in Africa, um, but it also hosts a Chinese base. It also hosts a Turkish base, um, as well as sort of French and Italian. Um, and so you can go through a lot of examples like Djibouti's, right? Small states that at one point felt they had to sort of play along and integrate with these kinds of, you know, institutions and dynamics and now can hedge their bets a bit. They can play different providers of order uh, and their norms and their goods off one another. So countries like Ecuador, countries like Tajikistan, um, you know, even countries like Hungary, the Philippines, Turkey, countries that we traditionally thought um, were either well within kind of the liberal ordering system or are sort of close enough on the borderline, on the front line. Like, you know, they still had some work to do, um, but they would get there. So, you know, for me, um, or, 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 you know, and, 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 and as, as we sort of develop this, you know, I, I would place emphasis on... Um, a kind of a death by a thousand paper cuts. This is another project with Dan that we are co-editing um, along with Morton Anderson, um, looking at particularly the international good substitution effect. And in that, we use this term 
um, you know, bottom up and the hollowing out of hegemony, that it's actually been hollowed out before we actually realize it, right? We don't have to have a kind of a Suez moment, but maybe COVID is that moment, um, which we can judge and say, oh my gosh, you know, American power, um, you know, and leadership is no longer uh, what it was. So certain things that used to be associated with liberal order look more illiberal now. And just because, you know, Beijing and Moscow say or don't say doesn't necessarily um, uh, mean that, uh, uh, you know, the kinds of, you know, policies and infrastructures that they're pushing aren't uh, transformative of the order in general. Hey, Sina, do you want me to get a little theoretical for a second? I know that this is something that you also like to do on the Loopcast. Yeah, go ahead. So, again, I don't know how much context your listeners have. I don't know where they come from. I don't know what your modal audience is. But so, the story, in many ways, the kind of story we're telling, and I've tried to emphasize this, uh, looks like a very standard account of how international relations works. And we've, you know, that essentially the in, there are issues, right? I don't, you know, when we're talking about hegem what I call hegemonic order theories, you should be aware that I don't actually buy all of these assumptions. And I don't think, for example, you have to have a hegemon to have international order. And I'll get to that in a second. But the standard story basically says that order is, the, the strong version of the argument says you only get orders when you have a hegemon who's capable of enforce, making and enforcing order, that orders tend to be created uh, after big wars. So you have this notion that sort of uh, big wars kind of create an opening for a new power to restructure international politics. Those could be wars of imperial conquest where a kind of group comes out of nowhere and conquers everybody and now it has no competitors and it organizes things the way it sees fit. It could be great power wars that leave a lot of countries um, defeated and other ones standing. So like the Napoleonic Wars or World War One or World War II uh, or the Thirty Years' War is often evoked as an example of a supposed hegemonic war where you have this titanic struggle between the Habsburg coalition and the French Bourbon coalition and the French uh, win. Uh, and that has, you know, that puts an end to Spanish hegemony ultimately. And it, it reduces the Habsburgs to one great power among any, many. So you have these kinds of stories, right? And so the idea is that the hegemon sort of creates this order at this moment of genesis, uh, in it's freedom to create that order is in part a function of how strong it is, but it sort of sets it up uh, and then it spends the rest of its life cycle defending or expanding and then ultimately defending and trying to conserve that order in the face of challengers. Uh, and so what matters is that as these new challengers start to arise, you have a shift in the distribution of power. The hegemon is relatively weakening. Other states are rising. The question in the standard story is, are those states revisionist? That is, do they dislike something about their lot in the order? Do they think they, not have, they don't have enough prestige? Do they think that they don't have the right territory? Maybe that there's territory that they think should belong to them, either because it used to belong to them or because they just think that they deserve more colonies in the world or whatever. Um, uh, or maybe they don't like something about its economic system. They think it disadvantages them or it, it advantages the wrong people, whatever. They, there's things that they don't like about the order and then they're revisionist and they can be more or less revisionist. They could be maximally revisionist we hate the whole order, we want to overturn the whole thing, it's keeping us down, 
standard, the, the classic example of this is supposed to be the Nazis, right, who want to overturn everything about Anglo-American order and they want to impose a kind of racially hierarchical, Aryan-centric uh, imperial order. I, I think that we overplay the degree to which racial hierarchy is novel or actually a revision of that order. It was already a racially hierarchical order, but that's the way we tend to talk about it after the fact. Um, uh, and then you, or they might be happy with things. So they might be status quo powers. They may be, you know, we're doing well under the system. That's why we're rising. Uh, we just want to keep it the way it is. And maybe they'll help prop up the hegemon or they won't challenge it. Or maybe they'll have a kind of smooth transition where you get more of a cartel running things, like a coalition of satisfied powers. Uh, and that's sort of the standard story. And then in that story, the, the order is understood as kind of essentially n rules, norms, and arrangements. And that's not unlike how I described it when I told this sort of macro historic story. So it's, you know, and those are, you know, as I said, rules and norms about when you go to war, about how the, how international economics are structured, how the domestic economy might be structured. Uh, and then some arrangements. What are the institutions? Are the institutions things like the UN? Or are they things like the concert system? Uh, or are they, you know, just an institution of empire, right? The Romans have Roman law and you are part of the Roman empire. And that's their, that's their institution. Uh, more or less, uh, to put it crudely. So, um, the the in in that story, and this is something that that's got got a lot of attention uh, starting in the Bush years in the field. The hegemon is supposed to be a defender of the status quo, right? This is its order; it wants to uphold it. Uh, but what we have learned, uh, and actually has been fairly obvious if you look historically, uh, we learned under the Bush administration, and we're learning under the Trump administration, is that the hegemonic power can be uh, run by leaders who don't like something about that order, right? Who are themselves potentially revisionist. So uh, famously, the Bush administration wanted to change the rules of legitimate preventative war to allow for, as I mentioned, the doctrine of preemption. This was a justification of the Iraq war. They wanted to change certain things about sovereignty rights that had to do with the war on terror. Uh, so they wanted to reform certain aspects of that order. Um, the Trump administration uh, doesn't seem to like multilateralism at all, uh, thinks that NATO, the ROK alliance, these are all ways that we're being exploited. Uh, we, have a we have some ideas about what Trumpism is about. I don't think Trump himself is a strategic thinker or actor, but Trumpism seems to want to, to generally believe that these kinds of uh, treaties and, and multilateral institutions are, are essentially constraints on the United States and they're weapons of the weak that undermine the United States. And the United States needs to renegotiate everything to get rid of all these, these, these arrangements. And so it can just negotiate everything from a position of strength in bilateral relations and therefore change the terms. And you get more protectionism, you get rents being extracted from uh, places where we have bases or we go home, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Trump's uh, 50 plus arrangement that he apparently would like to impose everywhere and, and was, was kind of prevented from doing so uh, towards the end of uh, what hopefully is his only term, in my view. But, so, um, so you get that sort of, so, so, so we've learned now that, that hegemons actually can not like things about their orders, that the leadership can want to change their order. And I think we should go further than that. There is, the, the whole assumption that underlies this, that order is something static, that there are these stable rules, norms, and arrangements, and you're either status quo or you're revisionist is not really the right way to think about it. Of course, dominant powers are always altering things about international order, even if they want to conserve it, right? They're, they're putting new side payments in. They're setting up new bases. They're acquiring new colonies. Uh, of course, they're going to be... Uh, in negotiation with other states or other 
principalities or even their own viceroys. There'll be contention amongst them, and that will, out of that contention, new arrangements, new bargains will arise. Uh, and so you can have rising powers that are more status quo-oriented with hegemons who are more revisionist. And this is certainly the way that, that the Chinese and the Russians paint themselves, right? They are defending sovereignty, right? They are defending multilateral, uh, equitable international relations against a rapacious hegemon that wants to take down uh, regimes for on these ideological crusades. And so this language is a problematic. It's problematic both because I think it's normatively loaded. It implies that the hegemon is necessarily a force for stability. And it also tends to make us think about orders as, as sort of more static and more purposive than they really are. So we think orders are more bricolages. There are things that are come, come together over the flotsam and jetsam of negotiations. We think, uh, as a lot of other people have shown, if you look back at these stories where the United States is supposed to be acting alone, it turns out that's not the case. The U.S. is obviously has more power in its negotiations over Britain Woods than anybody else, but it is negotiating with Britain. The Latin American states are actually important players in these negotiations. The same is true even in the Marshall Plan or in NATO. NATO has renegotiated uh, effectively a bunch of times to reflect new power realities. Um, the United States leaves places. It changes its status with forces agreements. It abandons bases when countries tell it that, that they don't want it to be there anymore. In other places, it's promotes regime change because during all during the Cold War because it thinks it's worried about communism, so it supports these brutal authoritarians, right? These are all the way that order is generated. And it's generated by a lot of different actors, not just states. It's also generated by non-state actors. Uh, by terrorists can affect order, as we saw in the early 2000s. Um, transnational activists can affect order by affecting the tenor of negotiations over the environment or over landmines or other types of things. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, political, political movements can affect order by agitating for change or by capturing governments uh, and, and becoming and then putting their views of order into play, as we're seeing in Hungary and as we're seeing in, in uh, Poland, as we're seeing in the United States right now. So it's a much more complicated story. The second thing that we think is really important to understand, and this is the language that Alex is using, is that order isn't just about a set of norms and ideas. It's not just about purposes. It's actually an elaborate infrastructure of relationships and practices and ties between, uh, sometimes between bureaucracies, between international organizations. It has, as, he, as Alex said, a kind of ecological structure. Uh, and that infrastructure can be highly institutionalized, like it is in the U.S. case, where you have all these kinds of um, standing procedures for having uh, annual bilateral talks on the military side, joint military operations, um, mutually embedded uh, bureaucrats, mutually embedded economic advisors and treasury officials and the like, all sorts of standing arrangements for constant flows and interaction between diplomats and domestic officials. Or you can maybe can very loosely institutionalized with a kind of remote empire that issues some orders every 20 years out to the periphery and doesn't much care as long as things are relatively stable. Uh, and so uh, when you put this together, the sort of fundamental dynamism of order and then the importance of this underlyingly dyna dynamic flows of infrastructure and sustaining it, you can start to understand why uh, something like Trumpism has quite the transformative potential. Uh, because if you start interrupting the infrastructure, if you cancel lots of, uh, of joint exercises, if you uh, don't engage in routine negotiations in international forma, if you pull out of them, uh, you essentially stop influencing them. You start 
breaking down aspects of infrastructures that have been power resources for you. Uh, at the same time, China is building all sorts of alternative infrastructure, a whole a range of international multilateral institutions from the Asian, from the AIB, from the New Development Bank to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to forums that meet every year of, of regional officials and regional actors. And this is creating a whole new dynamic infrastructure that is a basis for Chinese power, for example. And even if it's not activated per se, even if it's not weaponized at any given moment, it changes the contours of international order quite profoundly. And this has been going on for quite some time. It's been going on on the U.S. side. The U.S. has been rearranging its own order. It constantly does that, but it, it's been doing it much more radically, at least in terms of its assault on that order under Trump than even under the Bush administration. Uh, and then uh, it's, it's, it's happening. Other states are engaged in this kind of reordering and renegotiation all the time. And increasingly, uh, the stuff that's happening outside of the domains in which the U.S. is involved uh, is significant and is supplying real sources of order. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so in the book, you, you kind of, you, you guys kind of lay out three exits, right? So exit from above, exit from below, and exit from within. So how, basically how the U.S. is going to sort of exit from this position of hegemony. So I have sort of two interrelated questions. One is, how do we place, what is Trumpism's role in those exits? Because at the top of the show, we kind of described sort of where in the Trump administration itself, you do have people like Peter Navarro, people who are taking a very hard tact against China, not against Russia, obviously, but against China and are very engaged in this great, in this mode of great power politics. Then you also have this sort of, sort of strain of thinking of far right sort of white nationalism, white supremacy, far right politics that's sort of within Trumpism. So what is Trumpism's role within these exits? And then a sort of more personal question, which one of your exits that you sort of define and written out that you find most convincing? Which one do you, could you point to and say, that's probably the biggest sort of method or process from which the U.S. will exit a genome? It's, it's a good question. Let me go first, because I know Dan has, has his thoughts, especially on the transnational side, and I want him to, to vocalize those. Um, you know, I think they all contribute substantially, and perhaps they vary a bit by sort of cluster and in different times, but you know, there's a certain unexceptional quality to all of these pathways that I, you know, I think it's really important to stress. So goods provision was a central feature of not only Cold War politics, but also Sino-Soviet rivalry, right? When you think about, for example, Albania switching patrons, right, from a sort of Soviet patron to sort of a Chinese patron, and then the related infrastructure of workers, um, different types of standards, different sort of equipment that came in um, as a result of that. Patronage switching is, is, is quite common in international politics, right? It's just, again, using the 1990s as our benchmark, right? We, came, we became accustomed to thinking that the U.S. and the West had the monopoly on this. So I don't see that as exceptional, but it is taking um, a very significant toll um, at the moment. 
Regional organizations are harder, I think, to prove, but we still consider them significant because, you know, if, you're, if your standard is, well, what has something like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization actually done substantively? That's a standard, that's a very high standard for regional organizations and international institutions in general. They're all um, subject to sort of politicking, disagreements, um, you know, um, raising expectations too high, bureaucratic infighting, intransigent bureaucratic cultures. Um, but I do think if you are in Central Asia, if you are a country in Southeast Asia, if you are a country in Africa, right, the, the balance of Western versus non-Western regional organizations that you're increasingly engaging with, that as a diplomat, you devote your calendar to has shifted dramatically in the last 20 years. And so I think that's, that's worth bearing in mind. Um, that's a much more sort of gradual change. Um, I think the most unexpected pathway as articulated in the book is the transnational pathway. And I'll let Dan discuss that. So um, it's not that you can't look around the world and say, Hey, there are these uh, far right movements that are, affecting politics or coming to power. And they're, and it's not like you can't look at them and see that they're explicitly arguing against what they, I mean, they're, they're in fact oriented against international order, right? Globalism is bad. We need more nationalism. Our sovereignty has been tread upon. We need to defend our culture against evil liberal elites. I mean, this is the rhetoric. Um, there are variations. There are racialized versions. There are civilizational versions. There are more straight up national versions. Uh, there are ones that are uh, much more fascistic. There are ones that are, you know, kind of within the, the extreme of what we would think of as kind of conservatism. But, um, and there are potential ones, sorry, my chair is squeaking, but there are potential ones of these on the left as well. It's just right now they're not that powerful. But Corbynism, for example, is a good example of what we might have expected to see more of in an environment where the left was more powerful in terms of, uh, you know, populist movements that had down on the left that had real problems with certain aspects of, you know, what they would call neoliberalism. Uh, in fact, I don't like neoliberalism much either. So, <laughs> but, um, but the, um, but I think what we argue that is for uh, scholars more unexpected, although again, there are plenty of people who've made these arguments before, there was nothing new under the sun is to argue that uh, these kinds of what we call counter order, often transnational movements, are probably much more consequential in terms of changes in international order and the erosion of hegemony than uh, we tend to think they are, right? I mean, they get almost no attention in the conventional hegemonic stability or hegemonic order literature. They're just kind of these things that people are aware of on the side. The example I always like to use is Paul Kennedy in Rise, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers in his discussion about the bid for Spanish mastery and the bid for Spanish hegemony sort of kind of mentions on the side that, you know, the, a lot of the, this conflict has to do with the fact that there are Protestants and Catholics going at it. But he doesn't really think about that as a major feature. I mean, it's just sort of, it's a sideshow to, you know, Spain is engaged in too much overextension and it's bleeding, it's core productive capacity is dry. In fact, what if you look at the period you see is that it is uh, rebellions against in, in, in struggles against often against Spanish hegemony or Spanish ordering in some of its own provinces 
that uh, are driving Spanish overextension and that these uh, struggles are much more powerful and effective when they become hooked up to these transnational Protestant networks that have emerged out of the Protestant Reformation that are emerging during the 16th century. So in my view, what kills off the Spanish bid for hegemony is the Eight Years' War with the Dutch Republic. Why does why did the Dutch ultimately succeed and why are they able to hold on? It's because they have these transnational networks of Protestant support. Um, you know, they have uh, princes who are coming to their aid and they have, uh, they have arms shipments and loans being negotiated of Geneva by, by, the, by the sort of Calvinist central hierarchy, as it were, that's a synodic structure. They have relations with the Huguenot and they have collaboration and sharing of ideas as they fight against Catholic overlords. So and if you look more broadly, you see that these kinds of patterns in various forms show up again and again. So um, Richard Haas had a piece in Foreign Affairs where he kind of pointed out, yeah, you know, it's kind of a blow to the concert system. You sort of know this, that it's a blow to the concert system, that there are these uprisings of liberals and Republicans in 1848. Um, and, you know, indeed, yeah, actually, the, the, uh, the uprisings in 1848, which have an effect on the viability of the concert, the rise, the, the standard story we tell is, you know, this is old high school history story about the rise of, of nationalist movements and how that undermines the European balance of power system. Uh, and it's the man, the sort of conservative management of the system. But those nationalist movements, those are transnational movements, right? Garibaldi is going around everywhere, helping people nationally self-determine. Brits are going off and fighting in the Greek war for independence. You know, this is, this is the cause, you know, particularly liberal nationalism in the middle of the century. It's a, it's a transnational cause, right, of self-determination. Um, so uh, you fast forward, right? You know, you, we like to tell the story about empires crumbling because the British kind of give up. And the, it's true that the the, the Americans cut their knees, cut the British and the French knees out, out from under them uh, on empire because the Americans sort of think the writing's on the wall and they've got to compete with the Soviets for who's going to be the, 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 the great power that backed third world independence or the new nation independence. But why is this happening in the first place? It's happening because of anti-colonial movements uh, and, and national self-determination movements. And, and these movements are borrowing ideas from one another. There's, there are... Um, they're not, some of them are coordinating, a lot of them aren't coordinating, but they are borrowing ideas. They are uh, taking advantage of the fact that they're uprising at the same time. And without these anti-colonial movements, the empires would have, would have hung around, right? We still, still would have imperial orders. We tend to kind of, I, I guess we, they're not states and they're, they're not like white Europeans, so we don't give them the kind of attention they deserve. Um, so if you look at kind of this pattern about big transformations in order, it may be that there are underlying causes that don't have to do with transnational movements that challenge power, but I think that they're actually playing a big role in that story. And they play a particularly big role in the story when they manage to gain power uh, in states and in great powers in particular. This is the story of the interwar period. You know, the rise of fascists, fascists don't, are, are, can be disruptive, but when they actually take control of countries like Italy and Germany, that's when you start to get the, the road to the Second World War worked out. It's the, it's the capture of states by counter-order movements. Um, and of course, this is interesting to us because while it's not clear whether we're at the, the peak tide of right-wing counter-order movements, it is certainly the case, and quite unusually, as we've alluded to, that the United States is, is being run by a president whose views and advisors subscribe to right-wing counter-order arguments. Right, so and this is why I think that the transnational story, which is part of the story, uh, the counter-order movement story, which is part of the story of the way that 
uh, Trump is doing things that we think are actually quite counterproductive if you want to maintain U.S. power and you want to maintain U.S. influence. Um, that's wrapped up in that. I do want to say one thing, though. Um, we think U.S. global hegemony is over, right? We don't think that the U.S. is a global hegemon anymore the way it was in the 90s and the mid-2000s, even into the mid-2000s. The United States is a, is a, has very large hegemonic spheres still, although some of them are getting eroded pretty quickly, and these are for policy reasons, you know, but it has uh, still a lot of the wealthiest countries in the world are U.S. allies, even if they're getting really, really nervous about Trump often. Uh, the um, United States still has, um, you know, a preponderant power in the American hemisphere, although it does have to contend with Chinese aid and, and cooperation uh, in even Russian uh, activities. Um, but what the United States, and the United States is a sectoral hegemon in some areas, particularly financially and in monetary, uh, in, in the monetary domain. The United States just isn't a global hegemon anymore. Um, it is a uh, it is a regional hegemon of multiple regions, uh, and it is the far and away the most powerful great power in the world still, but it is just not capable of having that kind of uncontested ordering activities that are required to really be a robust hegemonic power, and that's because of Chinese goods provision and, and Russian subversion of the order and other actors, regional actors who have the money and resources and the will to offer alternatives and to pursue alternatives. Um, so. so that brings me to sort of an interesting question, which is, you know, what is the future of U.S. hegemony? You kind of laid out and you kind of stated it, which is, in your view, it's over, it's done. So what does the future look like? What is, you know, if you're, if, if a great power is receding, you know, I don't know if that that's accurate, but if it's sort of stepping back and it only has kind of this financial power, what is, what does the future look like? Is it, is it sort of a return to 19th century politics? Is it something completely new? Is it some sort of weird cyberpunk dystopia? I mean, what is, you know, when you, when you think about the future, what is it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is sort of, yeah. what is it? What I, is I, it? Another good question. I mean, I, you know, I would take the first stab and say the future is now, right? Um, that this, you know, metaphor of great power competition hearkening back to the 19th century, which actually the Russians really enjoy using as well as <laughs> this administration too it fundamentally misspecifies like where the contestation is taking place, right? Over which norms, rules, institutions, architectures. In other words, the world looks a lot more illiberal now than I would argue, you know, five, 10 years ago. And, you know, for us, and we have a, a kind of a related piece, uh, um, second piece that's, that's, that's on um, kind of illiberalism, in world order um, that, that's coming out with, with, with some of these similar observations. Um, but I would say, you know, the main tenet of this is that we are witnessing a kind of a retention of a lot of the intergovernmental and multilateral architectures and infrastructures that the U.S. helped found and build up, but we're seeing their gradual transformation and repurposing to serve the interests um, and be responsive to um, other powers other than the U.S., most notably China. 
Um, and so, you know, part of the bet that the U.S. has in, say, the current sort of withdrawal is to say, well, look, if the U.S. withdraws, the organization becomes meaningless, right? It loses funding, it loses sort of legitimacy and prestige. That might be true in certain circumstances. However, you know, I think we would argue that with the WHO, we're not going to found an alternative organization. This is what we have. And we've already seen that China has pledged to make up the funding gap. So you will see the WHO not fold, not collapse, but actually become more influenced by Beijing uh, and by other powers. So the transformation of the U.S. infrastructure is something that's already upon us. And so in this way, we will have many of the same kinds of forms that we had in the 1990s. It's just that their purpose and the country that's controlling them and ultimately their network ties are going to be quite different. We're not going back into the 19th century, right, in this kind of hyper-stylized model of sort of, you know, great powers kind of, you know, clashing over, you know, kind of very kind of meat and potatoes kinds of, you know, kinds of issues. Um, I think the second thing to bear in mind, though, is um, that even as Dan mentioned, you know, even as the U.S. is no longer, you know, a hegemon, um, the U.S. itself is likely to become susceptible to swings back and forth in terms of which kinds of ordering infrastructures it prefers or it pushes. And this is the final step in sort of what we've uh, sort of referred to, kind of, you know, the real polarization of foreign policy and even international ordering efforts, right? So for sure, if we have a Biden administration, you will see attempts to shore up the infrastructure, sort of build up the State Department, again, exercise voice in a lot of these foras. Um, you know, and that, you know, that will do something, but it's not going... Um, you know, to erode uh, all of these other sort of transformations. It will just have, say that you know, the U.S. has skin in the game and it will lose some, it will win some. Um, at one sort of extreme, it might become a champion again for liberal ordering uh, procedures, institutions, and values. Um, but it's going to be one of many and it will have some followers. It will have detractors. On the other hand, what Trump has opened the door to is a future challenge that I would submit is more sophisticated than Trump himself, who's not very strategic, as Dan has poignantly written about, um, to really um, fundamentally rewire the kinds of uh, ties that the U.S. has, um, be it in terms of, you know, transnational religious alliances, you know, the funding of sort of, you know, uh, um, you know, Christian fundamentalist movements in places like you know, Central America, um, you know, using sort of U.S. kind of, you know, national resources to do it, the repurposing of U.S. foreign aid, um, the sort of, um, you know, clear drive towards um, um, repurposing institutions like, you know, the Voice of America or these kinds of sort of symbols of sort of, you know, uh, you know, liberal values like, you know, freedom of the press and, you know, balanced newspapers. So that door's been opened. And post-Trump, I think the potential for a new administration to sort of change the pendulum again is quite high. We have lost the consensus of foreign policy. So we'll ebb and flow. We'll have patchworks. 
um, but it'll be a very 21st century. It's not going to be sort of the 19th century. And many of the institutions and actors that we see today that we assumed were working in one way might surprise us actually um, by being aligned um, with the Russia or with the China or with the Gulf states uh, more than we imagined. Dan, I'd be curious about your thoughts on this. I mean, I think we we agree. I, I you know, one of the things we do at the end of the book, as you know, is we don't actually commit to any future scenario. For me, even making the kinds of judgments we're making now gives me hives. I don't like the prediction game. Um, and uh, there are various things that could happen that would mean that our diagnosis is very off. But fundamentally, I think the the there, there is, I mean, Alex says that, that, and I think this is maybe the last time we talked about this, that there is an organizing principle around which it may be that both parties converge. And this is this idea of great power competition, right? Uh, and the model here is, I mean, I, I have a piece I'm working on right now that argues that this is a, this is a terrible way to think about international politics right now. Um, but um, the model is sort of a pre-World War I model. Right. The notion here is that, um, you know, China is like Wilhelmite Germany and we are like the United Kingdom. That was fundamentally the model here. Uh, and so we need to be prepared for. But then filtered through the Cold War, which was a multi-spectrum conflict. Right. So we need to have we have to need to be fighting Wilhelmite Germany the way that we struggled against the Soviet Union in the 50s and 60s so that everything is weaponized. Right. Everything is a competition. Everything is a struggle. Uh, and it's very zero sum. And there are signs that this is a kind of equilibrium around which the establishment in D.C. is uh, coming together, right? Because, and you know that's happening because everybody's using this frame to justify their preferred policies, right? And everybody is using this frame to justify their preferred policies. You know that that could be a consensus. This doesn't necessarily affect the stuff that Alex said, uh, because you could still see vast pendulum streams in terms of the instruments and procedures we use. But uh, this is something that I didn't really anticipate as much, I think, when we were working on the book as being a potential source of a kind of new consensus. And one that I think is probably uh, potentially deeply problematic in the sense that it's hard to pursue this line without fracturing some very important uh, partnerships and alliances, right? Uh, and it has some really odd implications for what happens in Europe. Um, but it could be navigated by uh, leadership that's very good at handling allies, something that Trump is not good at doing. Um, but the main thing I think is that that the analogy that I am much more concerned about is the 19, we're in somewhere in the 1920s, right? Uh, and what I mean is that that the that the real threat to what I consider to be important about the United States and its identity uh, and its power position uh, is ultimately the threat posed by um, the rise of something that is like fascism, um, whether or not we decide to call it fascism. And the problem there is precisely the problem that we identify in the book and that other people talk about, which is that there is no consensus around that as being a threat in the United States. There are plenty of actors who see those movements as either they are those movements or they're part of their coalition. Um, and so it's very hard to see how you could get any kind of consensus around the kinds of actions we would need to take to protect U.S. democracy, right, and to build a more robust liberal democratic 
transnational setting reconstitute the North Atlantic community more effectively around the preservation of democracy. It's very hard to see how you do that when one of your major parties views any step in that direction declaring the far-right terrorist organization, uh, cracking down on the role of dark money as a threat to their political strategy, right? And so my concern is that the areas we're most vulnerable in have to do with subversion of democracy and that right now we don't have agreement between the two parties that that's necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, and I don't know if, you know, we could imagine a scenario in which the left was doing the same thing that the right is now and the Democrats were open to it. I mean, I don't, you know, a lot of this is determined by, you know, is not necessarily neat. Uh, no, I don't really believe that. <laughs> I mean, I think that you could see something like that, but I think more likely than not, you know, this is a function of the way in which the Democratic coalition just locks it into being interested in the expansion of democracy right now. Um, and so for me, my fear is a future where that oscillation leads to paralysis among the United States of defending its core international institutions and its core domestic institutions. Uh, and you get this kind of um, uh, attenuation of American international power and American domestic stability. And that's much more likely, I think, now, I, would, I think it's much more likely now than I would have thought 10 or 15 years ago. Um, now, so that's what I worry about. Uh, and I actually think that that's probably the scenario in which we're more likely to get into a war with China, for example, is to have a uh, right-wing, uh, you know, sort of uh, racially infused yellow peril view of China um, that uh, produces very extensive and very robust great power competition. I think that's the scenario in which great power competition does produce the kind of new McCarthyism that people are worried about for example, domestically. So that, it's that fusion that I guess I worry about the most. And my, my thinking this has changed a little. The reason why I want to emphasize this, though, is that Alex and I both took the position, I think, around 2010 through 2014, 2014-2015, more like when Russia got involved in Ukraine and when Russia got involved in Syria, right? Our view, I think, uh, is this fair, Alex, was that Russia was essentially doubling down because that's all it had right? Syria was the only overseas military base. This is it. You know, Russia is going to throw its chits in here if it wants to be a great power. Ukraine is a core security interest for Russia. And that the fundamental fact about Russia was that it was isolated, right? It had, did not have this extensive network of alliances. The U.S. had that. It wished it had that. And until the Russians had that, they really weren't in the same game. The Chinese are starting from a very Chinese are emerging in a very dense ecosystem that's rich with U.S. partnerships and alliances, and the Chinese wish they had this. Right, they're looking for basing arrangements in some fairly like suboptimal places, right, to put bases in because a lot of the best places are locked down right now by the United States. And so we looked at that world and we said this is a world that's pretty good for the United States as long as the U.S. doesn't overreact and freak out. Right. Uh, and what's been just startling for me from 2016 on in the change in the tenor of the Republican Party, this, this erosion of some of this consensus we talked about, uh, has been that the U.S. has just like the U.S. has been the, under Trump, the U.S. has done more to shred that advantage than Russia or China has done to undermine it. And that really that's thrown off my entire calculations. Like it's changed my view of the Russian threat uh, as a threat to kind of liberal democratic order because we've been so bad at reacting to it, because we've been so vulnerable uh, to this kinds of transnational, seeing this kind of transnational activism as being a good from, you know, 40% of the country's perspective. 
And so that's what I really worry about. And that's the scenario in which, uh, that's the scenario in which the United States is not, you know, the good scenario, I think the best scenario on the power political front is the U.S. remains the most powerful country in the world, in part because of some of its advantages, uh, and in part because it maintains an alliance with most of the other economic and military great powers out there, right? Um, but, um, but that's going to take real effort. It's going to not happen if we have these snapbacks, these snapbacks, these whiplashes between different administrations. That's going to depend upon a real kind of commitment to uh, shore that up. And for me, that's the best case for our American power is that it is part of a coalition of states that is still 30 to 40% of kind of world GDP or 30% of world GDP. Um, of course, we haven't talked at all about climate change and the other elephants in the room that, you know, if you don't have robust multi-cooperation, you're just screwed on, right? And this is where I think COVID-19 is so dispiriting uh, because if we can't cooperate on a pandemic with very minimal distributional consequences because we have governments in the liberal democracies that are um, uh, both kind of incompetent and also allergic to multilateral cooperation, then our ability to deal with much, much larger challenges is really in doubt. So um, on that cheery note, um, before we go, um, give us both of you just a quick little something to, to think about before we, we leave for the night for, before we sign off. Well, you know, I, I would say that I think COVID, uh, you know, has been a great, um, a great spotlight on a lot of these dynamics. And I think, you know, one of the, you know, sort of thinking about sort of, you know, this analogy to our Suez moment, um, I think, you know, this is really the point at which, um, you know, U.S. leadership, you know, not only was absent, but, you know, we're seeing what it's like to be recast as, you know, the outlier, as the state that doesn't have capacity or competence, um, you know, the state, uh, which, um, you know, whose citizens are being sort of excluded. Um, I, you know, I think it's for those of us who study international relations, um, you know, and, and you know, exclude from places like the European Union or even our neighbors, Canada or Mexico, we're seeing the withdrawal from the WHO during a pandemic. In other words, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a very telling moment for me and, and beyond sort of, you know, the personal frustrations of, to, you know, how we're managing, we're mismanaging, you know, I really do think that, um, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, an inflection point that's going to have second and third order effects that, you know, we just can't, um, you know, we can't just sort of judge at the moment. So I don't think that's anything particularly, um, you know, novel, um, but it does sort of seem to me that this is taking, taken us, um, you know, off course in a, you know, in a really sort of substantial ways and really magnified everything it was that was sort of tearing apart this consensus um, that Dan sort of talked about. So that would be my takeaway. Yeah, I just, a uh, footnote to that, the consensus wasn't always good. The consensus was overly militarized and overly willing to intervene in countries and bomb people. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. So, I mean, we don't want to, we don't want to mistake that, but there, it, it is fundamentally, you would rather have a consensus to keep 
some consistency in international affairs and then reform the consensus than you would sort of the United States changing its entire alliance portfolio or its commitments every four years, which makes basically any kind of cooperation, durable cooperation, impossible. Okay, so uh, I think Alex is, is right. Um, I, I go back and forth on kind of like, you know, sort of what are the scenarios under which are better or worse than the United States, but I do want to say, and I, this is something I kind of hit on before, a lot of the arguments that say that the United States is destined to remain incredibly powerful, that it's destined to have all these resources, that some of its still remaining strengths of hegemony, like monetary dollar hegemony, can't go away, um, that say United States is just more innovative or our democratic system is just so much better that we have these innate advantages. All of these, I think, were operating in this world where they took um, the idea that the U.S. would have competent leadership for granted. And they took for granted that that incompetent leadership would not necessarily, you know, the U.S. institutions were strong enough to to stand incompetent leadership. The other collapse we're we're witnessing right now um, in the face of the pandemic is actually an extension of the utter, of the complete and total abject collapse that we've seen in the, in the diplomatic sphere, right? Uh, and in a lot of key U.S. bureaucracies that have been, you know, you like to, people like to attack the, you know, bureaucracies of the deep state, but have actually been really important for maintaining U.S. power and prestige and just basic U.S. competency, running this huge unwieldy machine that is a U.S. global power. Uh, and so it's really clear that the United States can be run to the ground by some, can elect and be run to the ground. I mean, I, I don't think this is, shouldn't be a political issue. I don't think this, the world would look like this under President Romney, right? I don't think it would look like this under President Rubio, right? Who people I disagree with on a ton of things, right? But, but I think that the, 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 the idea that people talk about this is the death of exceptionalism, and it should be, Right. And we will not make good policy. We will not make wise political decisions unless we treat the, the, this moment, the last two years, as evidence that we cannot assume that there's something special about the American character that will enable the United States to function as a political community, absent, effective, capable, barely competent leadership. Right. Um, the second thing I wanted to say about that I want to close on to is that, that we've been a little vague about what we talk about in terms of a liberalism. And a lot of what we've talked about has to do with authoritarianism. But an aspect of the book that we talk about to some degree and an aspect that shows up a lot more if you look at kind of some of our public facing writings and if you look at Alex's other work is very much at the heart of what's wrong with the fundamental flaws of kind of the Trump presidency and how we got here um, is the problem of corruption, right, and kleptocratic impulses uh, in the United States, uh, and corruption of our political system, uh, cor- uh, uh, corruption among uh, sort of um, rent-seeking among various elites and industries. Um, uh, the, we've talked about, you know, we've mentioned the role of dark money, but the way that dark money's opened the door as critics of the Supreme Court said it would to massive infusions of cash and influence by foreign actors who would like to weaken the United States often or want to influence it in policy directions that may not be best for the United States. Um, so this problem of corruption is a, a problem that we help to nurture overseas. We've helped to n- nurture through some of our economic policies. We've helped to nurture at home through some of our lack of transparency. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a problem that has come back and hit us really hard and in a really devastating way. Um, that problem, the sort of globalization of corruption, which the United States has, has 
both been an important agent against at times, but also been an important facilitator of, is I think something that um, is really at the heart of what the next few administrations need to tackle and succeed against if we're going to have fundamental hope for um, for our politics becoming more functional and fundamental hope for um, being able to manage a kind of increasingly complex, difficult world of multiple powers and of um, environmental catastrophe and all that sort of stuff. And so um, that's, I think, you know, it's, it's funny. What I used to say is that we talk, progressivism has emerged as a buzzword for the left, right? It's been adopted as a way of saying we're not liberal. But in many ways, the era we're in, the New Gilded Age, is an era that requires a progressive movement to tackle these problems in global political economy and domestic political economy that are interlinked that are, I think, um, without which we just will just continue to be saddled with the risks of, of more Trumps and more dysfunctional leadership and more, um, more uh, sectoral interests prevailing in ways that are very destructive to the public good. I'm sorry, I've gotten a little bit, like, a little bit decoherent as I talk about this, but I, I, I just really think, and we talk about this at the end, one of the real scenarios we're looking at uh, that's a straight line projection from today is the thorough entrenchment of a kind of global kleptocratic arrangement in which the United States behaves more, in some respects, more like a post-Soviet state than the United States that we're used to thinking of. And I think Trump has really taken us much further and faster that, in that direction than I would have possibly imagined even in November of 2016. Okay. <laughs> On that note, um, that was Dan Nexon and my other guest, Alexander Cooley. They are the authors of Exit from Hegemony: The Unraveling of the American Global Order. Um, I just wanted to thank both of you for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us and for letting us talk a really long time. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Sina. Thank you. Yeah.